this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's a very interesting section of Scripture. Um, Some people say it's very controversial. If you've pre-read it, you may understand why. Um, A lot of people make a big deal out of this, dealing with women wearing hats in church. Um, Some people make a big deal out of this section saying that women are called to be submissive to all men. And the particular problem that Paul identifies here is this issue of head covering, of a head covering in the church. Now remember, um, you know, today we're going to be, the message is called Honoring Male and Female Roles. And I'd like to say at the end there, biblically, biblically. Uh, most people read through this passage and come up with the focus of, like I said, a woman wearing a hat or a head covering and how it's shameful if they don't. That's not really Paul's point here, I don't think. Remember, this is the city of Corinth, and Paul was there around 50, 51 A.D., and um, we already know the background of this city. It was kind of a navy town. It was a seaport town, and, you know, you've all heard the phrase, oh, he swears like a sailor. Well, those are the people that came to Corinth. Okay, they were not good people. They were immoral people. Uh, it was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, and all the soldiers and the sailors and everybody would go there to have a party to relieve their stress. And we know what happens when that happens. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of carousing. Um, some commentators say that there were so many taverns there, it, was, it made our you know, uh, cities today look dry. There was one on every, every other store was a tavern or a bar. Um, David Hawking said that, uh, uh, one writer said that uh, they would frequent these places so much, the, the soldiers and the sailors had their own cups there. They didn't even have to bring a cup. They had a cup with a name on it because they did it so much. Uh, it was a place where people frequented, and um, it was just terrible drunkenness and immorality. And then you mix in with that, can you imagine all the polytheistic teaching that was going on, the pagan worship, and we found that out when they were talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And uh, one writer says, one of the... the, the uh, uh, the commentator says that one Roman writer says in Corinth they didn't know anybody that wasn't divorced. That was just normal. It was such a debauchery place. As a matter of fact, another term for immorality was to Corinthianize. You know, that's, that's how bad it was. They had a lot of problems, but Paul is addressing here some of their problems they had between male and female in terms of their attitudes toward one another. You know, we see this today with the women's lib movement and everything, and they, they look at Christianity as an enemy of women, that somehow Christianity teaches that women should be barefoot and pregnant and not say a word. And I, I, you need to understand culturally, It was Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that set women free in the DNA of Paul especially. It exalted them in a way that they were never exalted before. You have to remember, in Rome, women were treated like slaves, something to be used, something to be abused. And 
pretty much a man could do anything he wanted to a woman because it was, she was just a piece of property. That's what they thought. And they got away with it. It was a terrible time in the history of the world for women. And of course, these people were saved out of that, and so some of their thinking, some of their mentality crept into this church that Paul had planted. And so it wasn't, I don't think it caught Paul off guard that they had some issues going on. I mean, they had all kind of immorality going on in this church. They had um, the relationship between men and women was perverted to some degree. The relationship between a husband and a wife was perverted. A lot of things were going on, and, and Paul saw, and he heard when someone wrote him, and that's why he wrote this letter to them. He was concerned. And so he used a particular problem dealing with how women cover their head, how they cover their head to discuss the problem of male and female matters, relations. I don't believe, as you read through this text, and we'll read it in just a, a few moments here, like I said, I don't think the main issue is whether a, a, a lady covers her head or not. That's not the point. The issue deals with a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, depending on what translation you have, if you have the old King James, you say, well, it doesn't say husband or wife there. Where do you get that? Well, we'll discuss that, and I'll tell you where I get it. Uh, the issue deals primarily with the relationship of a husband and wife. And so, and we're going to see that as we go through. But let's read the text, verses 1 to 16, and you can follow along as I read for you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We looked a little bit at that last week. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, head, let her, uh, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as women was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgraceful for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given for her for a covering. 
If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Do join me in a word of prayer. Father, we pray for this text of Scripture as we consider at least the first part of it today. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and help us to see clearly what Paul is trying to communicate, first of all, to the Corinthians and also to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a colossal mistake made by many commentators and even Bible teachers when they approach this chapter. Um, They conclude, after reading what we just read, that all women are submissive to all men. That's not what this teaches. That's, I would consider that heresy. That may surprise you, but let's look at the text. I believe that's a false doctrine that was really brought about in church history because people missed the meaning of what Paul was trying to say here. He's not telling us that all women are submissive to all men. That would go against his own teaching, by the way, that we'll look at. That's absolutely false. It's uh, false. It's never taught in the Bible that all women are always submissive to all men. And yet you have all kinds of churches and ministries and, and uh, schools teach that very thing. That all women somehow are submissive to all men. That's not what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that a wife is to submit to her own husband. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible never teaches submission to any other man. And unfortunately, that teaching has done a lot of harm in the church over the years. And a lot of bad stuff came out of that. It's not the result of the Bible's insufficient teaching. It's the result of incorrect interpretation of some obvious points that we're going to be looking at this week and next. So as you look at your outline there, there's five things. The recognition of Paul's example in verse 1. The remembrance of Paul's exhortations, verse 2. Verse 3 covers the relationship of the husband to his wife, and that's probably as far as we'll get today. And then... Uh, Fourth, the reason for this instruction, why did he say this? And then also, the realization of this practice in the churches. Now, this is is very um, important. There's, There's a lot of bad things that come out of this teaching that all women should be submissive to all men at all times. Ladies, you can probably understand why. And a lot of churches and ministries that teach this usually end up with a lot of immorality going on within their ministry, behind closed doors, of course. Because there's that understanding where you just can't question. The Bible says that I'm submissive. And so people bring that into counseling sessions and everything else, and it goes bad real quick. That's not what Paul is teaching here. But we'll get into that in a few moments. But here, look at, first of all, verse 1. We looked at this last week. Be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, Paul isn't standing before these people on some ego trip. He's not saying, well, look at me. I am so self-righteous. No. He's saying, I have an example that is very powerful. If you follow it, 
And his example was very powerful for this church. And he wanted them to be followers of him as he was of Christ. He qualifies it. We're not called to follow individuals. You know, this is another problem we have with a lot of our churches today is it's almost like, um, you know, you have these people being worshipped who are leading these megachurches. And it's unfortunate because even when they do wrong, they can do no wrong. How dare you question? See, that's wrong. They're following a person. It's it's celebrity-driven. And all you have to do is step back and watch some of these things on TV, and they come out, and the smoke's on the stage, and the music's gone, and here I am, you know? It's almost like a Trump rally or something. It's crazy. You know, they're exalting themselves. Paul didn't do that. His example was very powerful. Um, He's telling them, I want you to follow the Lord. Follow me as I follow the Lord. I'm not trying to get on your case here, Corinthians, but I want you to follow the Lord in everything. In everything. And Paul brings a very strong, credible example of this. I mean, his example to the Corinthian church was overwhelming. He had been there for almost a year and a half, 18 months after he started the church. He started this church. He went there. He taught. He preached. People got saved. The church was born. And now he's writing back to them because someone wrote them with some concerns about what's going on in his church. And he said, hey, don't forget my example when I was there among you. What was his example? Remember, back in chapter 9, we talked about this. He wouldn't take anything from anybody. Because he didn't want anybody to sit back and say, oh, that Paul, he's just trying to build a big church so he can get lots of money. You know, that's, that's the, his motivation. He had no hidden agenda. He had no wrong motivation. He didn't charge them for anything. As a matter of fact, even when they gave him a piece of bread, he insisted on paying for it. Kind of ridiculous. He didn't ask them for help on his journeys, provide food or anything. If you remember back in chapter 9, that's what he went through. Now, he did say that there's nothing wrong with people who serve the Lord in a full-time way, that, hey, they should be supported. If they're giving up a career in some, some other field, and that's fine. But he said, I'm not going to do that. I'll go make tents. I don't want anybody to have any reason to accuse me of anything. And so now he's writing back to them, and he's saying, you know what? You know my example. I was there 18 months with you. Led many of you to the Lord. You know how powerful that example is, that I live for the Lord. I didn't live for myself. And this isn't the only place, by the way, he tells us to do that. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I mean, I pray that we all have that as our prayer, as our heart's desire, that we would be imitating Christ to where we could enjoin people to follow us as we follow Christ. That's not a prideful thing to say. The problem is so many of us aren't imitating Christ, we would never even dare to say something like that. But that should be our heart's desire. Even in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, And then it says this, consider the outcome of their way of life. And what? And imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. 
Now, you don't carry this to an unhealthy degree. I've been in churches where if the pastor wears black-rimmed glasses, all the pastors wear black-rimmed glasses. And if the pastor wears a black suit, all the pastors wear a black suit. And if the pastor speaks with passion and has a southern accent, well, now the other pastors get up, they speak the same way. They're little clones of this pastor. That's not what Paul was about. That's not what any church should be about. But he wanted them to recognize that he was a Christ-like example in their midst. And that's not just for spiritual leaders or people that plant churches as Paul did. That's for every one of us as believers. When we walk out these four, four walls into a world that's lost and dying in sin, I pray that it is our desire to live lives as Christ would live. So we can be an example of his holiness, of his righteousness, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy. Now, we don't do that perfectly by any means, but that should be our desire. We should want to emulate Christ. That's what we're called, Christians, little Christs. We're a picture of Christ. That's why he left us here, by the way. He wouldn't have left us here if that wasn't the purpose. Trust me, we're probably more of a pain to him than we are good most of the time, right? But that's not his plan. I mean, I wish it was. As soon as you got saved, guess what? You just took a, you know, a, a trip up to heaven, and you were gone. As soon as you professed Christ, boing, you're gone. Wouldn't that be a motivating thing to get out of here? Uh, you know, free trip to heaven. That would be wonderful. But it doesn't happen that way. What happens? You're left here in this sin-stained world to slug it out spiritually and to be an example for those who are left to point them to the Savior. So the realization or the recognition of Paul's example. Secondly here, the realization of Paul's exhortation. Paul's exhortation. Look at what he says in verse 2. Now I commend you. (laughs) I thought that's interesting. He commends them. Have you lost your mind, Paul? (laughs) I mean, you just received a letter about this church. They're doing everything wrong. Everything. Everything. I mean, there's immorality, there's debauchery, there's the messed up the communion thing. They're, they're celebrity worshiping people. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. You know, they had all this stuff going on in their church, and yet Paul can say honestly, I believe, now I commend you. I mean, we've just read through 10 chapters of Paul pointing his finger at them. No, don't stop, stop, you better stop. But here he takes a breath. And he says, I commend you. You know, that's a good lesson for all of us when we have to confront somebody, and that's what he's about to do, by the way. You, know, you, you can always find something good in everything. So many times it's easy to run to what is strikingly bad and point that out. That's easy to do. Sometimes it takes a little more prayer, a little more wisdom to be able to sit down with someone who's really troubled and has a lot of garbage in their life and yet be able to say, you know what, I commend you on this. Because <laughs> people need to hear that. People need to hear that. 
Even kids need to hear that, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a parent who just constantly discipline, 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 and you never encourage or commend your children, find something to commend them for. So he says, I commend you. Why? Because you remember me in everything. <laughs> you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He's actually complimenting this troubled church. I mean, he's been chewing them out for several chapters here, and now he, he comes to these kind words that he's commending them. And before their head gets too big, he, he wants them to, to make sure that what he understands, what he's commending them for. One commentator says it's kind of like when you're sitting in church and the pastor gets real personal with you. And you say, what? Well, he's not preaching anymore. He's meddling. He's meddling in my business. That's kind of what, what Paul is about to do with this Corinthian group of believers. And so he's not buttering them up. He's not being disgenuine here. He is saying, hey, I commend you. Why? Because his exhortations were practiced. That word, see that word traditions or ordinances? Depends what translation you have. But he says, you remember me in everything, you follow my example, but then you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That word tradition, it's used over 13, about 13 times. And traditions can be good or bad, right? We all have traditions to some degree in our families. And, and some of the traditions in the Bible were, were good traditions. Others were not good. How do we know that? Because Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, remember, in Matthew 15. Because they were what? Following the traditions of men and not of God. And so Paul wants them to understand that, you know what? Not all traditions are bad. They can be good or bad. And here it's speaking of good traditions. Paradosis is the word there. And the funny thing about this in the original language, when you look at verse 2, he says, I'll read it kind of a paraphrase from the original. He says, now I commend you because you remembered me in everything and maintained the traditions that I traditioned to you. See the word delivered in your text there and the word tradition? It's the same word. It's just one's a noun, one's a verb. So literally, Paul is saying, you know what? You remember me in everything, and you're maintaining the traditions that I traditioned to you. I delivered to you. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, there's the word, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Or even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, listen to this, from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. See, the teaching of heresy is very serious in Paul's mind. And it comes a lot of times by way of tradition. And so he says, look, we gave you some truths I gave you some truths when I was there, when I was there 18 months with you. And I commend you that you, at least you, you held on to those. 
you know, you're, you're still practicing the Lord's table. I mean, you got it all messed up, but at least you're still doing it. See, he's finding something good. Yeah, you're practicing some baptism. That's good. He's saying, I'm glad that you're, you're doing these things, Corinthians. But then here comes verse 3. But. <laughs> See how he kind of, hey, oh boy, yeah, you're doing great. But. I got to tell you something. <laughs> Let me tell you. It's not all good. That's what Paul's saying. He gets into the relationship of the husband to his wife. This is what he's about to talk about. He says in verse 3, But I want you to understand, first of all, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is where, unfortunately, people get this whole context wrong. Because they're looking at it in relationship to men and women. That's not what Paul is teaching here. You say, well, how do you know that? In the ESV, it tells us the head of a wife is her husband. They got it right. The King James will read uh, the, the head of a woman is a man. That's not right. And that's where that false heretical doctrine of all women being submissive to all men at all times comes from. And it's really messed a lot of things up. The failure to indicate those Greek words, you have to understand in in the Greek language, there's one word for women. One. It doesn't designate whether it's a young teenager or a woman who's 85 It doesn't designate whether the woman's married or whether the woman has been divorced. Just one word in the Greek language for women. Not so for men. It's a couple. And it's very important. One, you're probably familiar with, you probably, I don't know if you took Greek or not, but if you never even took Greek, if I said this word, you would know what I'm talking about. If I said anthropos, well, anthropology, yeah. What? The study of humanity. That's one word. That's the general word. That's the word that we would translate all men in the Bible. Guess what word is used here in our text? It's not anthropos. It's the Greek word anur. Now, you say, well, how, does, how do you know it's talking about wives and not just all women? Remember, I said there's only one word for women. So how are you supposed to know whether it's talking about a wife, a divorced lady, a married lady, a young child? How are you supposed to know? You know by the context, right? This is why we teach through the Bible. This is why we take it step by step, chapter by chapter. And I thank you for your patience as we do that. But there's a reason for that. And so here, in our text, it's not the word for man, anthropos, that's being used. Because if that was used, then we would say, well, this word for woman talks about women in general. But because it's the word anur, and wherever you see the word anur or andros relating to a man, in the context, 
you always, 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 when it has the, the original word for women there, translate it as wife. Every time. Every time. And so wife is meant in the translation only when the word man is in that Greek, that Greek word anur or andros, not the general term for all men or all humanity, the Greek word anthropos. The word for man, anur, here is used in the New Testament about 212 times. As a matter of fact, it's used 11 times right here in our text. Not once, when you're reading down through here, depending on what translation, if you see husband or man, not once is it the word anthropos, which means men in general. Never means that. Doesn't say that. So what I'm telling you is the text tells us that a wife is to be submissive to her husband. That's a biblical teaching. It's not teaching that all women are submissive to all men. That's not what it's teaching. So women, that, that should be good news to you. If you ever hear someone say, well, you know, women are to be submissive to all. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry. If you're a wife, you're called to be submissive to your own husband. And as a matter of fact, the same word is used over in 1 Corinthians, and you can turn over there. We'll look at this right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now here they're talking about the gift of tongues, and like I said, the Corinthian church had a lot of wrong things going on, and one of the wrong things was disorderly worship. It was chaos. It was like some of the word of faith, you know, things you see on TV where everybody's up and they're flopping on the ground and they're screaming and they're yelling and it's just chaos, pure chaos. That does not please God. God is a God of order. Now, I think in churches like ours, we can use a little bit of, you know, excitement now and then. (laughs) You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it does not want to become, we don't want it to become disorderly. And see, that was the problem they were having. And so we see here in chapter 14, he's dealing with prophecy and tongues, and then he begins to talk about orderly worship. And if you look at, at verses 34 and 35, now remember, these, this is the same, when it talks about men here, this is not the word anthropos in chapter 14 even. It's the word anur. And so it says there, look, look at it, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. Amen. Amen. Be careful what you wish for there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> for they are not permitted to speak. Ouch. But should be in submission, as the law also says. Verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask ESV translate it properly, their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, if we apply that principle that wherever the word anur, anur is, is presented in the Greek, here it's husbands, okay, let them ask their husbands. It doesn't say let them ask their men. It's their husbands. Let's read it 
the way it should be translated, because the ESV even gets this wrong here. The wives should keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a wife to speak in church. It changes it a little bit. It changes it significantly, as a matter of fact. So what happens is, in modern church life, we read a verse like that, and we say, well, what that means is, it doesn't mean literally that they have to be quiet. You know, they can teach the little children. Let them work in the nursery. They can teach the little children, and, um, you know, or other women. They can teach other women. That's fine. But they can never, ever teach anyone above that age bracket or stand in front of a group of men and read a verse or something like that. That would be heresy. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that, you know what? When a husband and wife come to church, the wife shouldn't be sitting there running her jaw through the whole service, just like the husband shouldn't be. And that's what was going on in the Corinthian church because they had their roles all messed up. This is what goes on a lot of times, even in charismatic circles today. What happens? The women take over the worship. And you got all this craziness going on, and no one's providing any sense of order. I remember, I think I was relatively new to the church, but we had one of our, I don't know if it was Beth Rainey, one of the missionary ladies came to our church. And she came up here to share during the service. And shared, I don't know what she shared, her testimony or whatever. And um, after the service, somebody in the church came up to me and said, oh, I can't believe you allowed that to happen. I was like, what? How dare you let a woman stand in front of our congregation and open the Bible and teach? I said, well, hold on a second. I said, um, first of all, she's single, so her husband's not here. She doesn't have a husband. Secondly, she's in submission to the elders. We asked her to do this. And at the end of this conversation, I said, really, what is the problem? You, you had her up on the platform behind the pulpit. That's just wrong. I said, what? What, what, would, what would, next time she comes, what should we do? Well, you should put a music stand down here and have her come down front. And that would, I guess I'd be okay. Really? Have you lost your mind? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not what the Bible's teaching is we're going to find out. Now, is there a role for men in the church? Yes. Is there a role for women in the church? Yes. Does God spell that out very clearly in his word? Yes. So unless you're thinking I'm going down some rogue path, should women be pastors or elders in the church? No. Why? Because it's a little hard for them to be the, the husband of one wife. 
Now, you could probably argue today in our weirded out society that a woman could have a wife. That's not, you know, you could go that road. That's not what Paul's talking about, though. So there's certain roles that we have to identify biblically. And so it doesn't mean that women are forbidden to say anything in a church. Unless it's little kids. I mean, where does it say that in Scripture? They didn't even have little kids ministry in the Bible. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. See, if you don't distinguish what the text is speaking to us here in verse 3, the relationship between a husband and a wife, you have all kinds of problems. And you've got to make all, all kinds of stories to make it make any kind of sense. But once you understand that in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about a husband and a wife. He's not talking about just men and women in general. I mean, if you get that wrong in 1 Corinthians 11, then you end up with a fight. And the fight is over whether women should wear hats or not in church. It's just insane. But that's not what's intended in that text. Now, the other thing, I just want to say this. When it says there, the woman should keep silent, okay, in churches. In the original language... See, this is the neat thing about understanding it. There's a word for silence, a particular word. And it means cessation of words. What's that mean? Shut up. Don't talk. That's what that word means. Guess what? That's not the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 14. That's not the word. There's another word that's used for silence, that has the spirit of tranquility when you speak. Um, in other words, that you, you speak with a peaceful spirit. Now, men, you can conclude with me that when you talk to a woman who is filled with a peaceful spirit or is being tranquil with the way she's communicating to you, you can probably communicate to that woman all day long. But when you have a woman who is not peaceful in her spirit and is not being tranquil, you don't want anything to do with them. All right? And so here, it's the word that has the idea of, you know, if these women are going to say anything, then they should be doing it peacefully. There should be some tranquility in their words. And that's not, unfortunately, what was going on in the Corinthian church. If you look over at 1 Timothy, another text, 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Let's just start in verse 8. Now, I'm showing you text where people use these texts in order to prove the point that all women should be submissive to all men. Okay, this is what they use. These are the proof texts that they use for that false doctrine. And it's the same thing here. It says in verse 8, I desire then that at every place the men should pray. Women, you're left out of this. But it says, the men should pray. 
It's not the word anthropos. It's the word aner, which refers to a husband. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women, there's the, the word, it's only one word in Greek, but guess how we need to translate it? Not just women in general, because the previous word for man is not anthropos, it's an earth. So, likewise, also that wives should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Should we pass the plate and everybody put their jewelry in the bucket? <laughs> Remember, some of this is cultural, ladies. But, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. So to do that properly, we would read it, but with what is proper for wives who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman or let a wife learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a wife to teach or to exercise authority over her husband. That's the word anir. It's not anthropos. It's not all men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So if you were to read that without understanding the original language and the, the references here when it says woman, it should be wife. It really changes the whole idea, doesn't it? And it's very important to understand these things. So what I'm telling you is that the text tells us that a wife is to be submissive to her own husband. It's not teaching us that all women are submissive to all men all the time. You can look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Same, same thing there. Ephesians 5, verse 22. By the way, if you just jump back one verse, verse 21, he says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, this is where this heretical doctrine of all women submitting to all men at all times conflicts with what Scripture says. Well, what do you do with that verse when it says submitting to one another? See, there are people that teach, even within marriage, that, you know, the wife is, you know, they have this, this, this domineering thing, the husband, it's whatever he says, that's it. There's no talk, there's no going back and forth. That, that's not biblical. There's a mutual submission that happens within the confines of marriage. Are the roles the same? No. The role of the woman is to be submissive to her husband. That doesn't mean she doesn't get to talk about things. One husband was bragging to his friends, yeah, well, I make all the the major decisions in my family. One of his friends said, yeah, how many have you made so far? <laughs> Shut him right up, right? Because the wife was making all the decisions. So it says here in verse 22, wives, 
Submit to your own husbands. Notice that, to your own husbands. If you believe in the doctrine that women are submissive to all men, what are you going to do with this? It doesn't say, wives, submit to everybody, all the men. No, it says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, this is a picture for the ladies, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. See, This makes it clear that a wife is to submit to her own husband, not to all the other men. That creates chaos. Now, you see here also, not just the importance here of this, um, but you go back to 1 Corinthians. You okay? Everybody okay? Okay. Said this is a difficult chapter, so we'll wrap this up in a little bit. Um, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, notice what he says here in verse 3. Let's just take this verse apart. He says, But I want you to understand, look at the first thing he says, gentlemen the head of every man is Christ. See, this is the imperative of a husband's submission to the Lord. If you're married and you're not in submission to the Lord, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. You don't have a lot going for you. Um, That's tough. And this is... Saying here, the head of every man is Christ. You know, when you deal with couples and you deal with the relationships and and everything, inevitably, inevitably, and anybody who's ever done that will tell you the same thing. Inevitably, when the, 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 the relationship breaks down between a husband and a wife, usually, generally, it's the failure of the husband to submit his life to the Lord. To one degree or another. And guys, here's the secret. It's easy. It's easy for a wife. And we're talking in the context of Christian marriage, right? It's easy for a wife to submit to the authority of her husband when her husband is being submissive to the Lord. It just is. Any woman would tell you that. And like we just read in in Ephesians 5.21, you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, if if you go at it, you know what, it's, you you just, woman, you got to submit. You're not going to get far with that. That's not going to work very long. It's definitely not going to create a tranquil environment in your home. That's why he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the role of the husband is he's the leader. See, ladies, here's the good news for you. In a Christian marriage, guess whose shoulder bears the weight of that relationship? It's the husband. He's the leader. 
He's called to be the head of that family unit. So his role is, he's responsible for the whole thing. So, lady, if you're married to a guy that's maybe just not doing the right thing, should you still be submissive to him? Sure. Why? It's his responsibility. You just sit back and maybe watch him crash and burn a couple times and maybe he'll learn his lesson. Maybe finally he'll submit to the Lord wholeheartedly. Because it's not on you. That's not your role. Your role is to be what? A helpmate to him. See, and we've taken this and we've turned it into something that it's not today. So it's imperative of a husband to be submissive to the Lord. Secondly, here you see the importance of a wife's submission to her own husband. It says the head of a wife is her husband. One interesting thing is when you look at the original language, and I hate to keep on going back to that, but that's what you have to do when you get a a, a troubled text like this. When it says the head of every man is Christ, okay, there's a definite article there. What's Paul saying? You know what? There's a lot of heads out there as far as authority goes, but there's only one head. The head of the, the man is Christ. It's not your boss. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. It's Christ. But guess what? When we read head of a wife is her husband, even though in our English translations it says the head of a wife is her husband. There's no definite article there in the original. What's Paul saying? He's saying the head of every man is Christ. There's none other. Yeah. The head of the wife is the head. He, yeah, there's many heads out there and one of them's her husband. That's kind of what he's saying. Because there's no definite article. So when you submit to your own husband's leadership, ladies, pretty much you get whatever you want. You do it with the right spirit. And it's the husband's responsibility. He's the head. God will judge him. See, that's the, the sweetness of submission. And, and submission has always been a mutual thing within the marriage. It's not one-sided. So there's an importance there of a wife's submission to her own husband, an imperative of the husband's submission to Christ. And then we'll close with this. There's an illustration here of submission. He says, and the head of Christ is what? Who? God. What's Paul saying? Look, I'm telling you this. I'm not just making this up, Corinthians. Here's a great example. The head of Christ is God. Well, I thought they were all equal. Yeah. Yeah. When you figure all that out, let me know. You know, when you can get the Trinity all figured out, let me know. All I know is when Christ was here on earth, physically, who was he in submission to? His Father, right? 
The submission of the Lord. Remember, in the garden, not my will, but what? But thine be done. What was he doing? He was submitting his will to his Father's will. And he said over and over and over again, I came to do what? My Father's will. He's the perfect example of submission. For the husband to God and for the wife to her husband. But see, when you get things all mixed up and you don't define the terms, well, yeah, you can go around touting, yeah, all women are submission. It called it to be in submission of all men. That sounds ridiculous. Are there roles that men and women have? Yes. Are there roles for men and women within the church? Yes. Can a woman come up here and read a scripture and share a testimony behind a pulpit and not violate that role? Yes, if it's done under the authority of her husband and under the authority of the elders in the church. Definitely. I remember one time we had a women's conference here. I can't remember who the teacher was, but I was sitting back there in the, in the sound booth. And I'm thinking in my head, should I be in here? Am I sinning? I mean, there's a woman up there teaching, and it's all women, and then there's me doing the sound. And I thought, what a ridiculous thought that is. And then I had to humbly admit, wow, I'm actually learning something here. I mean, this, this gal can really preach. This is pretty good. So you have to balance, okay, that truth. Now, would we have a woman get up and preach a sermon? No, we wouldn't. Why? Because it, I think it would give the wrong, <laughs> it would create more of a stumbling block for people than it would be worth. Would it be sinful? If she's doing it under the authority of her husband and the authority of the elders, I don't think it would be. Would it be sinful to make a woman an elder? Yes. That goes violates principles in the scripture. Would it be wrong to make a woman a pastor? Yes. So you have to be careful. And we don't want to overstep those, those boundaries. We don't want to take godly traditions and make them into the traditions of men. Well, next, next time we'll, we'll look at the reason and, and uh, the realization of these, in the, these truths in the church. But... I pray that that was somewhat insightful for you. I hope you don't stone me after the church service today. But uh, let's, let's close in a word of prayer and uh, ask God to bless the remaining uh, time of our time together. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you, you created the Greek language and you used it uh, in your word to transfer truth to our hearts. And sometimes we don't see nuances and things in the English language that are there in the original language, whether it be the Greek or the Hebrew. So it's always good to step back and to make sure we're understanding these principles honestly and, and, and um, understanding them in the culture in which they were spoken, but then also how do they apply to us today. And Father, we know that you have gifted men, you have gifted women to serve you in different degrees of ministry. Yeah, there's different roles that we serve. But, Father, I pray that we would understand that um, you call for us all 
to be mutually submissive to one another in Christ. Father, you say in your word that we should even prefer others above ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that's troubled by this teaching or maybe they don't even know Christ, Lord, I pray that you would somehow communicate to them their need of a Savior. Lord, that you would draw them to the point that they would be willing to confess you as their Lord and Savior, that they would bow their their knee, that they would give up ownership of their own life to allow you to lead them. Lord, you created us. You know what's best for us. Sometimes we think we're the only ones that know that, but no, you do. And so, Lord, it's, it's not so hard to yield our authority to someone else when we know that the one we're yielding and we're being submissive to is all authority. That you created everything there is. You're all powerful. You're all knowing. So, Father, I pray for those who have yet to come to Christ that they would understand their need and that you would draw them, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me to be submissive to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you. Pray that you would just give us a good remain, remaining of the weekend and also um, over the 4th of July, just keep us all safe and pray that we would have a, a blessed week. And uh, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.